essays seventeen and eighteen of the romance of the commonplace by gillette burgess this librivox recording is in the public domain essay seventeen the charms of imperfection for a long time i have held a stubborn belief that i should admire and aim at perfection i admitted its impossibility of course i attributed my friend's failure to achieve it as a charming evidence of their humanity but it seemed to me to be a thing most properly to be desired and yet upon thinking it over i was often astonished by the discovery that most of my delights were caused by a divergence from this ideal a sweet disorder in the dress kindleth enclose a wantonness now is this because i am naturally perverse and enjoy the bizarre the unique and the grotesque is it because of my frailty that i take a dear delight in signs of our common humanity in the petty faults and foibles of the world or is it because i have misinterpreted this ideal of perfection and have thought it necessary or proper to worship a conventional criterion celestine and i have been puckering our brows for a week over the problem we have learned after a quarter of a century's experience with the turning lathe and fret saw to turn back for lasting joy to handmade work we delight in the minor irregularities of a carving for instance recognizing that behind that slip of the tool there was a man at work a man with a soul striving for expression the dreary methodical uniformity of machine-made decoration and furniture wearies our new enlightened taste mathematical accuracy and spirit seem to be mutually exclusive and we have been taught by the modern aesthetic almost to regard amateurishness as a sure proof of sincerity we cannot associate the abandon and naive enthusiasm of the pre-raphaelites with the technical proficiency of the later renaissance and botticelli stands not only for the spirit dominating and shining through the substance but in a way for the incompatibility of perfect idealization with perfect execution and yet this conflict troubles us we feel that the two should be wedded so that the legitimate offspring might be perfection but when perfect technique is attained as in a japanese carving the result is almost as devoid of human feeling and warmth as a machine-made product we feel this instinctive choice of irregularity wherever we turn wherever that is that we have to do with humanity or human achievement we do not it is true delight in the flaw in the diamond but elsewhere we are in perpetual conflict with nature whose sole object seems to be the obliteration of extremes and the ultimate establishment of a happy medium of uniformity we find perfection cold and lifeless in the human face i doubt if a woman has ever been loved for an absolute regularity of feature but how many like little celestine who acknowledges herself that her nose is too crooked her eyes too hazel and her mouth too large are bewilderingly charming on that very account these features go to make up an expression which if it is not perfect is certainly not to be accounted for by merely adding up the items it is a case where the whole is greater than the sum of all its parts we admire the anatomy and poise of the greek statues but they are not humanly interesting indeed they were never meant to be for they are divinities and the symbols of an inaccessible perfection 
still while we speak of certain faults as being adorable notably feminine weaknesses while we make the trite remark anent a man's one redeeming vice while we shrink from natures too chaste too aloof from human temptation too uncompromising yet we must feel a pang of conscience we are not living up to our ideals is it the mere reaction from the imposition of conventional morality i think not it is a miscomprehension of the term perfection the buddhist believes in a process of spiritual evolution that tending ever toward perfection finally reaches the state of nirvana where the individual soul is merged into the infinite how can it be differentiated from the universal spirit if it has attained all the attributes of divinity and that idea seems to be the basis of our mistaken worship of perfection a nirvana where each thing being absolutely perfect loses every distinguishing mark of character but is not our christian or even the pagan ideal higher than this for even the greek gods cold and exquisite as they were had each his individuality his character his separate function our conception of heaven if it is ever formulated nowadays has this differentiation of individuality strongly accented though the most orthodox may insist that the spirits of the blessed are sanctified with perfection yet he does not hold it is a necessary dogma that they are therefore all alike and recast in a common mould he still dares believe in that infinite variety which nature has taught us persists throughout the universe this is the fundamental difference between the oriental and the occidental point of view we moderns stand for the supremacy of character an ineradicable distinction between human beings which evolution and growth does not diminish but develops we believe you and i that in a million eons we shall be as different one from the other as we are now that faults may be eradicated weaknesses lose their hold but that our best parts will increase in virtue not approaching some theoretical standard but always and forever nearing that standard which is set for ourselves we have grown out of our admiration for the copperplate hand in penmanship we recognize the fact now that we need not so much follow the specimens in the copy-book as to make the best of what is distinctive in our own style of writing and this is a type of what our conception of perfection perhaps should be everything should be significant of character should supplement it translate it explain it in the japanese prints you will find almost every face with the same meaningless expression every feature calm disguising every symptom of individuality it is the oriental pose the oriental ideal just mentioned it is not considered proper to express either joy or sorrow and the perfection of poise is a sublime indifference and i have a final idea that may to a more subtle student of aesthetic seem suggestive in the beautiful parabola described by the mounting and descending sky-rocket the upward and downward path are not quite parallel the stick does not drop vertically although it continually approaches that direction 
in other words the curve constantly approaching a straight line is beautiful despite and indeed perhaps because it never quite attains that rectilinear perfection and keeps its distinctive character to the end it is beautiful in its whole progress for that path defines the curve of the parabola essay eighteen the plays the thing would you rather see a good play performed by poor actors or a poor play done by good actors asked celestine as a professor of the romantic view of life and a ghost seer there is but one answer to the question the play's the thing acting is at best a secondary art an art that is of interpretation though we as critics judge it of itself alone but to an idealist no play ever is or can be perfectly performed as we accept the conventions of stage carpentry impossible cottages flat trees property rocks misfit costumes and tinsel ornament so we must gloss over the imperfections of the players and accept their struttings and mouthings as the fantastic accessories of stage land no actor that ever lived ever acted throughout a whole drama as a sane human being would act we are used to thinking the contrary but the compression of time and space prevents verisimilitude a play is not supposed to simulate life except by an established convention every art has its medium and its limitation it is indeed a limitation that makes art possible in the drama the limitation is the use of the time element the play's the thing we may read it from the book or have it recited before the footlights but the lasting delight is the charm of plot that with the frail assistance of the actor finds its way to our emotions a good play done by poor actors then for me if i must choose between the two evils fancy creates imagination constructs the child sporting ingenuously with both these powers dwells in a world of his own either induced by his mastering fiat or remodelled nearer to his heart's desire from the rags and fragments at hand in his toy theatre alone is the perfect play produced for there imagination is stage manager and has the hosts of wonderland in his cast the child is the only perfect romanticist he has the keen fresh eye upon nature all is play and the critical faculty is not yet aroused so in a way too was all primitive drama the audience at shakespearean plays heard but noble poesies saw but a virile dream made partly visible like a ghost beckoning away their thoughts so even to-day is the chinese theatre with its hundreds of arbitrary conventions its lack of scenery and its artificial eloquence the veriest coolie knows that a painted face a white nose stripes and crosses on the cheeks does not portray a masked intention as if the actor bore a placard writ with the word villain forthwith all the rest is fairy the player does but lightly guide the rain and pegasus soars free so no play can be perfectly performed we have created an artificial standard of realism and we say that bernhardt Duz, and coquin portray emotion with consummate art it has been agreed by authorities on aesthetic that 
simulated passion surpasses in suggestive power real emotion the actor must not lose himself in his part he must maintain the objective relation Nonetheless, however must we as audience supply imagination to extend the play from art to life from a romantic point of view such devotion to realism is unnecessary we are swayed by the wildest absurdities of melodrama alike false to life and false to art and we accept the operas of wagner with all their pasteboard dragons and bull-necked heroes belching forth technique as impressive stimuli to the imagination even through such crude means uplifted either by passionate brotherhood or upon the wings of song we are wafted far and fast the play oh the play's the thing for see if you prefer the bad play performed by the good actors why not go to life itself what else indeed is life it was the old duke in lewis carroll's sylvie and bruno who first pointed this out all the world's a stage where are performed the worst of badly constructed plays plays with neither unity nor sequence nor climax but performed with absolute perfection why waste your time cursing the adelphi when like the duke you can see the perfect art of the street the railway porter's dialect is still convincing the fat woman with her screaming children may enter at any minute with her touches of wonderful realism if you go to the theatre for acting you go to the wrong place watch the pont neuf for the despairing suicide lurk in whitechapel visit in mayfair coquette with a spaniard's sweetheart or rob a jew strike an englishman love an american girl flirt with a french countess or watch a samoyan beauty at the salt pools catching fish but try not to find perfect acting behind a row of footlights but if after all the play's the thing it is as much a mistake to look for real drama upon the street there everything is incomplete and for the satisfaction of our aesthetic sense we require the threads to be brought together and the pattern developed the knots tied our contemplation of life is usually analytic we delight in discovering motives elementary passions traits of character and human nature our joy in art on the other hand arises from synthesis we love to see effect follow cause and events march logically passions work themselves out the triumph of virtue and justice life as we see it is a series of photographs the drama presents these successively as in a biograph with all the insignificant intermediary glimpses removed we hunger for the finished story the poem with the envoy for this reason we have the drama and the novel and now celestine asks me would you rather read a good story poorly written than a poor story well written the question is as fair as the other though not quite in the same case we may agree that acting is a secondary art but literature has more dignified claims to considerations here we are contemplating a wedding of two arts not the employment of one by another one might as well say then would you rather see a good man married to a bad woman or the reverse it is the critic who attempts always to divorce the two 
yet as in almost all marriage where the two arts work together one is usually the more important one may have one's preferences but the selection of that art which embodies an idea rather than the one which aims at an interpretation marks the romanticist's point of view one art must be masculine creative and the other feminine and adorning the glory of the one is strength of the other beauty for me then the manly choice give me the good story badly told the fine song poorly sung the virile design clumsily carved rather than the opposite cases the necessity of such a choice is not a mere whim of celestine's it is a problem we are forced to confront every day we must take sides it is not often even from the philistine's point of view that we have the good thing well done while the poor thing badly done we have everywhere between these limits of perfection and hopelessness then lies our everyday world of art and there continually we must make our choice if we could deal with abstractions there would be no question at all and undoubtedly we would all prefer to enjoy the discarnate ideal rather than any incomplete embodiment no matter how praiseworthy the presentment but few of us are good enough musicians to hear the music in our mind's ear when we look over the score of an opera few of us can dream whole romances like dumas without putting pen to paper few even can long remember the blended glories of a sunset we must have some tangible sign to lure back memory and imagination and if we recognize the fact that such symbols are symbols merely conventions without intrinsic value as art then we have the eyes of the child and the romantic view of life and lastly celestine leaned to me in her green kimono and said would you rather see a pretty girl in an ugly gown or an ugly girl in a pretty gown ah one does not need to hold the romantic view of life to answer that question end of essay eighteen